Good singing, man. I, I, sometimes I have to stop singing because I start to cry because when the singing is really good, I, I just remember I told the South Congregation last Sunday that they were really rocking last Sunday night. And, you know, I always remember back then when there was three people and it was me leading. It was really bad. But the Lord blessed it. The Lord blessed it. But I, I just can't help, you know, when I hear you guys sing, you sounded really, really good this morning. I can't help but think back and what God's done and what He's doing. I've shared this with you before, but uh, every Easter, Karen and I watch one of our favorite movies, but I can't do it this Easter because somebody ripped me off. And if you rip me off, if you have my DVD, I'm going to declare an amnesty period, and you can bring it in, no questions asked, if you have my DVD, Jesus of Nazareth, okay? No questions asked, you can bring it on in. But somebody's ripped the pastor off. You still have it? I thought you gave it back to me. Okay. All right. I'll give you grace. Yeah, it's mine. It's mine. I thought you gave it back to me. Okay. Yes. I can watch my favorite DVD on Easter. Um, Jesus of Nazareth is what it's called, and, and it's by Franco Zaffarelli. Uh, in my opinion, although, although. You can't really capture Christ. It's almost blasphemous to try to capture him on film, but, but uh, it, it's a good movie, and it, it does capture, at least in, in some biblical way, many aspects of his life. Now, the Gospel of John tells us that uh, Andrew and John were the first ones to follow Christ, the first disciples to follow Christ, okay? But the movie, you know, Andrew and Peter are, Andrew and Peter are uh, brothers, and while we have no real biblical insight into what was going on between them. Andrew was following Jesus already. The movie, with some creative license, has this dialogue between Adam and Andrew. And Andrew comes to Peter and he says, we have found the Messiah. Okay, and Peter says this, Andrew, I'm not like you. I'm not a follower of prophets. You followed the Baptist, now go follow this Jesus as well. I'm a fisherman. This is my life. These are my nets. These are my boats. And in the movie that night, Peter is greatly moved as he hears the Lord Jesus share uh, the story of the prodigal son. And the next day, Peter, uh, he piles everyone in his boat to take him to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, okay? And uh, Jesus gets out, and uh, Andrew and Philip and James and John and Nathaniel and Matthew were there. They all get out of the boat and they begin to walk away, and Peter's standing in his boat, right? And he's looking at Jesus. And he's looking at his boat. And he's trying to decide. Is he going to go with Christ or not? And Matthew's, Matthew and Peter's eyes meet. Matthew turns. And he goes with Jesus. And Peter's standing there. And he's trying to decide. And he looks at Jesus again. And he looks at his boat again. And we'll come back to Peter in a minute. I love little Debbie snack cakes. How many of you love Little Debbie snack cakes? Okay, we got a few people, a few honest people. These Canadians, they don't like Little Debbie snack cakes. I don't understand this. I, I don't understand this. They don't like Little Debbie snack cakes. I love Little Debbie snack cakes, okay? And I love my cowboy boots. I love barbecue ribs and Little Rock. I love uh, Cotham, Cotham's cheeseburgers. You know, so cheeseburgers, the grease just runs down your elbows. It's great. I love Gadwall's uh, onion rings. I love living in Italy. I really, really do. I love the beach. Uh, I love my wife. I love Jesus Christ. You see the problem we have in the English 
when we say we love something? Um, am I saying that I love little Debbie snack cakes like I love Jesus Christ? Of course not. Am I saying that I love my wife like I love onion rings? No. That's not what I'm saying. That's not what I'm saying. In the, in the English, there's always this relative degree that's implied when we use the word love. The Bible tells us that God is love and God has made us to love. He's made us to love a myriad of things. Uh, cowboy boots and onion rings and be the beach and your wife, your husband. He's made us to love a myriad of things, but preeminently He designed us to what? Love Him. Preeminently. We are to love Him. What is the first and second commandment? What is the first and second commandment? You shall have no other gods before Me, God says. The second commandment is, you shall not make for yourselves idols. Then He goes on, you shall not worship or serve these idols, for I am a jealous God, says I am. I am a jealous God. What did Jesus say was the greatest commandment in the law? Matthew chapter 22, verse 37. What is the greatest commandment? To love the Lord if you get a chance. Is that how it goes? If it's convenient, if you can get it on your calendar, if it doesn't conflict with anything else that's important today. Jesus says we're to love the Lord with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, and all our strength. This is how we're called to love God. And the Bible tells us if we love anything else above God, what does the Bible call that? Idolatry. If we love anything else above God, if anything else in this world is uppermost in our affections, if, it's, if, if we love it and we pursue it and we desire it more than God, we are, according to the Bible, this is not me, this is what the Bible says, we are idolaters. This is what God says in His Word. John Piper says this, this is a great insult to God, to love anything above Him. I mean, all you have to do is do an inventory. Oh, He created us. Oh, He gave us everything we have, everything we are, every capacity uh, that we enjoy, every physical attribute that we have. He's given us everything. All you've got to do is do a, uh, a mental inventory. This is a great insult to God not to love Him above all. And Piper goes on, he says, it's, a, it's the root of all sin. This is Piper's definition of sin. I've shared it with you before, but I love it. Listen to this. Sin is the suicidal exchange of the infinite value and beauty of God for some fleeting, inferior, sugar-coated substitute. It's like God says in Isaiah 55, Jeremiah 2, and Romans 1, men have exchanged me for stuff. Go read those great texts. Isaiah 55, Jeremiah 2, and Romans 1. Men have exchanged me for stuff. They have exchanged living water for broken cisterns. Broken cisterns that cannot satisfy their thirst. So that's where Peter is. He's looking at Jesus and he's looking at his boat and he's trying to decide, am I going to love God more than I love my boat? That's where he is. 
Am I going to love God more than I love my temporal security? Am I going to love God more than my profession and more than my, my comfort and my ease and more than my successful business? Am I going to love God more than all of that? This is what he's trying to decide as he stands there in that instance. And you know what? You and I have to decide that too, right? You and I have to decide that too. Are we going to love God preeminently? Or are we going to give our affections to something in the world? What's going to be uppermost in our hearts? God or some lesser thing? I love what Jesus said over in Matthew 6, 24. And I, and I, I love the Bible because <laughs> there's never any middle place to be. You know, there's no middle place to stand. God makes it real clear. Listen to what Jesus says. No one can serve two masters. It's impossible. For he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The message, which is a paraphrase, paraphrases it like this. You can't worship two gods at once. Loving one God, you'll end up hating the other. Adoration of one feeds contempt for the other. You can't worship God and money both. And what's true about money is true about any other thing that you love above God. You can't, love, you can't say you love God and love this worldly thing equally. You can't do it. You're lying, as John has told us already. You know? Uh, you can't do it. You're lying to yourself. It's impossible. God says it's impossible. Jesus says it's impossible. And Peter has to decide, is he going to love God or is he going to love what he has? Is he going to love his stuff and his, his aspirations and his hopes and his plans more than he loves the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what Peter is deciding as he stands on that boat. And I love that scene. I love it. I love that scene. I've stood there. I've stood there. And I bet you have too. I love that scene. So will we love God for these vapor-like moments we have upon the earth? Are we going to give our affections to some lesser thing? Some temporary, sugar-coated substitute? I love that definition of sin. Some fleeting, temporary, sugar-coated substitute. Okay, you heard the text read. I'm going to read it again. Let's just read verse 15 here. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Uh, we're going to see uh, the seventh hallmark of a genuine Christian. We've been talking a lot about this. This is what 1 John is about. We've seen six thus far, just in, uh, by way of review. We, we know a genuine Christian by, number one, he believes John's testimony. He's a believer of Christ. He believes that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah sent from heaven. Uh, the, second, the second hallmark of a genuine Christian is that we are in fellowship with Jesus Christ. We walk in the light. We practice the truth, albeit uh, imperfectly. We continue to make that point. But we have fellowship with Christ. We deal with our sin. True Christians deal with their sin. They don't try to hide it or suppress it. They deal with it. They come before the Father and they confess it. And God forgives and cleanses us. Uh, the fourth hallmark was that we know God. And people can tell we know God because we live like we know God. We become doers of the Word. 
The fifth thing we saw last week was that if we're genuine Christians, name brand Christians as we talked about last week, we love the brethren. We love the brethren. In an expensive way, a courageous way. We talked last week about a blood, sweat, and tears kind of love for the brethren. And also last week we saw that a genuine Christian is overcoming the lies of the evil one. Overcoming the evil one in their life. Okay? By the power of God's Word and His Spirit. And today we're going to see the seventh hallmark of a genuine Christian is that we do not love the world nor do we love the things of the world over and above God. It's not wrong to love your wife or your husband uh, or your job or your career. It's not wrong to love these things. It's not wrong to love Little Debbie snack cakes. But everything has to be done in, in some uh, context of order and degree. God is to be preeminent. Always. God is to be preeminent. God is to be preeminent. And let me say here in this verse, the first thing I want to say to you is sometimes, you know, when you read a verse like this and you see love three times and, and you think to yourself, is there a word play here in the Greek? And there's not. This is the same Greek word each time the word love is mentioned here. It's the same Greek word. There's no word play here in the Greek. So it translates well in the English. And the Greek just means that we are to love in the deepest sense. We are to love dearly. We are to be devoted to it is to be uppermost in our affections. Now, I could translate this verse like this. I want you to listen to me. Do not have the world or the things of the world uppermost in your affections. If anyone has the world uppermost in their affections, God is not uppermost in their affections. Okay, do you understand? That's how you could translate that. That's how you could translate that verse. One commentator said, said it like this. It is empty talk to say we love God and, and pursue the things of the world with all our heart. He says it's empty talk. The Bible says it even stronger than that. The Bible says, James 4.4, 4, the Bible calls it adultery. <laughs> Do you know this? James 4.4, 4, the Word of God says, You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now God calls men who worship idols, and that doesn't have to be carved statues. It can be anything. Fill in the blank. Money, sex, power, possess possessions, prestige, status, whatever. Fill in the blank. That can be your idol. But God calls men who love these kinds of things over and above Him. He calls them spiritual harlots and spiritual adulterers. Strong language, right? Strong language. But this is what God says. And God not only says that, He says there in that James passage, He says, such a man makes himself my enemy. You have become the enemy of God if you have given your affections uppermost to something in the world. God says, that man is my enemy. He, has been, he is hostile to me. Pretty strong stuff. So what I want to say to you, beloved... There's, there's a lot at stake here in verse 15, 16, and 17. There's a lot at stake here. Surely only the most self-absorbed and foolhardy man would want to make himself an enemy of God. As one theologian said, it was one of the best definitions of sin I ever saw. It's very simple. He says it's insanity. Sin is insanity. To sin against God is insanity. We're all inflicted with it. 
but that's a pretty apt assessment. It is insane to make God our enemy. It is insane. Now we need to understand what is being said here about the world. This, the, word, the word world is used here. Let me go ahead and finish reading 16 and 17. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but it is from the world. And the world is passing away and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God abides forever. Now let me, let me just tell you, the Bible uses the word world in three distinct ways. Obviously, it uses the, the, the word world in connection with the, the, the physical planet, okay? It's just talking about the earth. The other way that the Bible uses the word world is in, in conjunction with humanity, talking about the world of men. And we know when God created the, the heavens and the earth, it was good. And we know that God loves mankind, for God so loved the world, okay? Those are those, that's how those two uh, definitions are used in context. But here, it's using it in a different context. The, the world here means the fallen system that is hostile toward God. The fallen evil system led by Satan that is hostile toward God. That is what is being, that's what's meant here when it's using the word world. It's the world's mindset that ignores, demeans, slanders, and hates God. And you know what I'm talking about. All you have to do, turn on your television, go to the movie, Listen to the, the popular music is all you have to do. It either ignores, slanders, demeans, or is overtly hating God. <laughs> and this system is headed up, as you know, by Satan. The Bible tells us that he is, Ephesians 2, 2, the prince of the power of the air. The Bible tells us, John 12, 31, that Satan is the ruler of this world. The Bible tells us, 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, He is the lowercase g, little g, God of this world. And then John will tell us uh, in 1 John 5.19 that the whole world lies in His power. Okay, you understand this, right? And the Bible also confirms what we already know. Not only is Satan at, at the, the head of this system, but that fallen and unredeemed men are his willing accomplices. You know, I get so weary sometimes. People come to me all the time and they say, Why is the world like this? Why is the world like this? Why has God let the world get like this? Whose fault is it that the world is like this? Someone tell me. It's our fault. God gave us everything north, south, east, and west of the tree, and it wasn't enough. We wanted something more, and now we've got this. And I always grow weary of that question. It's an accusation against God. I, I hate those veiled accusations against God. It's like this because we chose this. We believed Satan's lie, and here we are. Here we are. The Holy Spirit is teaching us that if we are friends with the world, the God ignoring, the God demeaning, the God slandering, the God rejecting, the God hating world, then we have made ourselves the enemies of God. I love uh, uh, what Jesus told us in John 15, 18 to 20. He says, this is what it's going to be like to be a real Christian and live in this world. You remember that great text? This is what he says. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. 
but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. The world hated me before it hated you. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. You remember what Jesus said in John 17, we are to be in the world, but someone tell me. Not of the world. We are in it, and we are here to be the light of the world. We've talked about this a lot in the last few weeks. He has a purpose for us. He left us here to be the light and to be the salt. That's why we're here. And if you're not being salt and you're not being light, then you're not doing your job as a Christian. That's why He left us here. That's why He doesn't take us on to heaven. He left us here to be salt and to be light. But Jesus says, the world has hated me and it will hate you. And you guys know what I'm talking about. Many of you who really live your Christian life, your Christian walk, you take it serious. Many of you know what I'm talking about. Because you've experienced this in your school or in your neighborhood. Or even in social circles or even at work or in your family. That there has been some irrational hatred of you. There's no reason for it. But for some reason, this other person, they simply hate you. And what does the Bible tell us? Why does the world hate the Christian? Because we are the light. The light of God. Is, we talked about it last week. The light of God is shining through us. And it exposes what? Their evil Deeds. We are a living accusation against the world. We are a living accusation against the world. And so the world hates the Christian. So we are not friends with the world. The world is a God-slandering, God-demeaning, God-ignoring, God-rejecting, God-hating system. And again, all you have to do is listen to the, the modern media. Verse 16 the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life. This is the, the junk that, that this lowercase God, lowercase g God, has put out in the world. What was it that snagged Eve? Do any of you know Genesis chapter 3? What was it that, that snagged Eve? Remember Satan planted those two lies we talked about last week in her heart and in her mind. God's not good and sin is better. Now these are the lies that Satan will come to you every day and he will say, God's not good, you can't trust him, you don't need to live by his commandments. And then the other thing he'll say is say, sin is better, come with me and try this. You're going to hear those two lies every day you live. <laughs> uh, it's the same two lies he's always used. And I, I was thinking as I was preparing this, uh, this message, I was thinking, how he must laugh at himself uncontrollably at times. He's been telling the same two lies since the world was created and men are still falling for it. I thought to myself, how he must yuck it up. He doesn't have to come up with any new material ever. We're still, we're still falling for the same stupid lies. And just go read Genesis chapter 3. And as I read Genesis 3.6, I want you to try to hear what John just wrote to us in verse 16 of John chapter 2. Verse John chapter 2. I want you to hear it. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, what does that line up with? The lust of the flesh. And that it was a delight to the eyes. The lust of the eyes. And that the tree was desirable to make one wise. What's that? The boastful pride of life. Her flesh lusted. Her eyes lusted. Her pride was enticed. She was gone. And it's the same thing with you. 
And it's the same thing with me. This is how Satan, he's never had to change his game plan. He's never had to come up with anything new. And you know what the Bible says. She took from the tree, the tree's fruit, and she ate. I've shared this with you before, and I think it's important. I want to share it with you again. You know that God designed you to lust, right? You know this. We were built to lust. And you say, well, Jim, that doesn't sound very Christian to me. It doesn't sound like something I should hear in the church. Well, it's just because the world has hijacked the word lust. And, and it's always used in a negative context. And we know how it's mostly used. It's always used in, in relation to, to sexual, uh, sexual lust. But if you go look in the dictionary, it's talking about any kind of intense desire. That's all lust means. Any kind of intense desire, craving, yearning, wanting. That's what the word lust means. And God made you to lust. Listen to the psalmist. You hear it in their words. My soul pants for Thee, O God. My soul thirsts for Thee. Psalm 63.1 God, I shall seek Thee earnestly. My soul, my flesh yearns for Thee. Psalm 143.6 My soul longs for Thee as a parched land. Brothers and sisters, we were wired and built to lust. It's not, it's not that we lust, it's what we prioritize when we lust. That's our problem. It's what we lust for most. That's our problem. We're supposed to lust for God. It's supposed to be a holy lust. It's supposed to be a holy pursuit. A holy desire. A holy longing. It's right there in the psalmist's words. I'll just use their words. We're to pant. We're to thirst. We're to seek. We're to yearn. We're to long for God. God made us to lust. He made us to lust for Him. I want you to always know that. I want you to always remember that. God has made us to lust for Him. But Satan's game is to get you to lust for something else over and above God. Now, it can be some legitimate lust or some legitimate desire simply to maybe get married, to have kids, to, to have a career, to have a comfortable home uh, for for food for uh, legitimate sex in the, in the context of marriage. All of these things are legitimate. But what Satan wants to do is he wants to put that legitimate desire over and above God. That's what he wants to do in your life. And as the Bible says, we've become idolaters when we succumb to his seduction. If we have anything over and above God in our lives, friends, you have some serious business to do with God. If there's anything over and above uh, the affection you have for God, if there's anything in your life over and above that, you have some serious business to do with God. You need to get alone with God. And you need to clean that up. I love how John MacArthur summed up verse 16. He summed it up perfectly. This is what he says. You know, you, I probably wouldn't even have to read it. You could probably write this yourself. He says, verse 16, he says, the way the, your average man lives, it's, it's wanting what you want and you could care less what God says. Isn't that the way men of the world live? I want what I want. I don't care what God says. Even many in the church who profess to be Christians, if you looked at their life, I was going to ask you today, if some third party consultant was called to come in and examine your life, and review your life, 
what would they conclude? That you were a preeminent lover of God or a preeminent lover of something in the world? What would some unbiased third party coming in and just examining your life, watching you in your home, watching you at work, looking in your checkbook, if they had access to everything personal, would he conclude, would this third party conclude, man, this guy loves God. He loves God more than anything. Or would he conclude something else? Would he conclude that your, your affections were uppermost with some lesser, what, how did Piper say it? Some temporal lesser sugar-coated thing. Friends, I meet and talk with people like this all the time. People who profess to be Christians. And I'll say things like this to them. No, you can't divorce your wife. You have no biblical grounds to divorce your wife. God says no. I say things like, no, you can't abort your baby. That's the image of God in your womb. God says no. And I say, no, you can't keep sleeping with your girlfriend. No, you can't keep having sex with your girlfriend. God says no. And I, I had to actually say this to one man who repented. It was an awesome thing. I said, no, you can't continue to pursue your homosexual lifestyle. God says no. Why does God say no? Because He wants us to give us the best thing. And what is the best thing that God has for us? Himself. God says no. Don't run after that sugar-coated, temporal, fleeting stuff. You come after Me, and here's how. You've got to love the Word of God. He's always honest. He's always honest. He's always honest. So people, I, I, I have to say, I, just, I simply shudder sometimes. I counsel with people who profess to be Christians and I, I counsel with them and, and I just shudder at how they just blow off God. They just blow Him off. I'm going to do what I want. That's what you think, Jim. No, 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 that's not what I think. That's what, that's what God says. That's what any thinking man would say that this word means. And I, I, I have to tell you, I shudder sometimes. I shudder. And how easy it is for people who, who will say that they are Christians to simply blow God off and do what they want. Jesus, as He always does, God, I, I thought about you when I wrote this sentence. Jesus nails it. I thought, I'm going to say Jesus nails it. And I knew you would say something kind of smart back to me. Well, He always nails it. Jesus always nails it. But Luke chapter 6, 46, Jesus says, Why do you call me Lord and what? Not do what I say. <laughs> That's what Jesus says. Why do you call me Lord? but not do what I say. Let's look at verse 17 real quick. Verse 17. There was a preacher, I saw, heard a preacher, and he had this, uh, he did an outline on these three verses, and it was really, really good, but the last point was really good. He said, he said, the genuine Christian does not love the world. Why? Because it's passing away. We're not going to set our, our affections on the things of the world. It's dying. It's condemned. It's under the wrath of God. We're not going to set our affections on the things of the world because it's passing away. I was going to read 2 Thessalonians 1, 7-9 to you. Listen to this. Here's some straight talk from the Bible. The Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. 
We're not going to waste our time loving the things of the world. doesn't mean that we don't have seasons and that we don't fall into sin at times. We've talked about this. We never become sinless. We understand that. But the genuine Christian is progressively putting down his sin and progressively moving forward in sanctification. Our, it's not perfection. It's not, you know, it's not that, that we become perfect, but it's the direction of our life. Not the perfection of our life, but the direction of our life. We're headed toward Christ. We love Him. We're moving in this direction. We're becoming more and more conformed into the image of Jesus. We left Peter standing on his boat, right? And Satan's lying to him. He's saying, you need to stick with this fishing thing. It's a lot better. You'll make more money. Your family will be more secure. You'll have more food on the table. You'll be a big guy at the Rotary Club. You need to stay in this boat and you need to paddle back home. You don't need to follow that guy. Don't follow that guy. Who knows what's going to become of you if you follow that guy? Can't you hear Satan just telling him all these lies? You need to stay here and, and provide for your, your, your temporal needs, the lust of the flesh. He says, look at this top-of-the-line boat that you have the lust of the eyes. He says you'll have status and position in your community, the pride of life. Satan says you need to stay right here on this boat. You need to stay here on this boat. You need to remain what you are. Peter looks at Jesus one more time and he jumps off the boat. If you know the movie, he jumps off the boat <laughs> and he looks back at who is probably his son. And he yells at his son. He says, take her back to Capernaum. And he heads off. He heads off after Jesus Christ. Friends, the Holy Spirit is telling us this morning that if we love the world or the things of the world, the love of the Father is not in us. So let me ask you, is the love of God uppermost in your heart? It's the love of God uppermost in your heart. If you're here today, you find out, honestly, between you and your own conscience, you discover that you don't really have very much love for God. If you find that, that you're in that situation, I've got some advice for you. Cry out to Him. Seek Him. Look for Him in His Word. Repent of known sin. Fellowship with His people. Seek Him with all your heart and don't stop seeking Him. What's that great promise in Jeremiah? It's one of my favorite verses. God says, you will seek Me and you will find Me when you search for Me with all your heart. It's a beautiful, beautiful promise. If, you, if, you don't, if you're here today and, you, and you've, you don't love God, you honestly don't, you never have, seek Him. Seek Him. And you will find Him. The second possibility is that you may be here today and, and, and uh, you, you are born again. You, you, you have a relationship with Christ, but your love has grown cool. Your love has grown cool. I'm going to tell you to do exactly what I told the, the first person to do. I'm going to tell you to seek Him. I'm going to tell you to pour, to pour over His Word. I'm going to tell you to fellowship with His people. I'm going to tell you to repent of any known sin. And I'm going to tell you to, to pursue Christ with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Pursue Christ. Don't let the things of this world 
uh, or these petty distractions choke out your love for God. There's that great verse in uh, that great verse in Revelation. Jesus says, "You've left your first love." And if you're here today and you've left your first love, I'm going to invite you to come back to your first love. Pursue Him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. God's Word says, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away along with its lusts. But the one who does the will of God abides forever. And that's how I finished the sermon last week. John is saying, here's what a real Christian looks like. And you're supposed to be saying, that's me! I see myself. Yes, I am a son of the King. Yes, I am a co-heir. Yes, I am a partaker of the divine nature. Yes, I'll be salt and light. Yes, I'll live like it. And this is why John is exhorting us and assuring us that we in fact are Christians. That we might live it in the world. That we might be the salt in the light. Let's pray together. Beautiful, beautiful God, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You how You teach us. We thank You how You give us truth. You love us enough to speak truth to us and we praise You, great God. And Father, if there are any of us here guilty of loving the world just now, I pray that Your Spirit will convict us and will turn our hearts away from that which is dead and dying, that which is passing away. Oh God, come and turn our hearts toward You. Warm our hearts. Renew our hearts. Father, if anyone here has a heart of stone, I pray that You would plant a heart of flesh in his chest. Father, that it might beat for You, that You might be uppermost in our affections, individually and corporately. That we would be a church who magnifies Christ and holds Him up for all the world to see, for all the world to be drawn to, for all the world to love. Father, may we be doing nothing less than that, magnifying Your Son, that thousands would come to know You in this, this, this dark place in which we live. Thank You, great God, for this beautiful exhortation. We love You. We love You preeminently. We love You above all things. Oh God, give us the faith, the courage, the strength to walk like that. May we walk in such a way that Your light is shining through us. We love You, great God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to partake from the table this morning. And the way we do this... Uh, um, we have open communion here, so all who uh, have professed Christ as Lord and Savior and have followed Him in baptism, you're welcome to partake of the elements. And the way that, that we do this is we play a song and uh, uh, prepare your hearts in prayer. And when you're ready to come, come up and take some bread and take some juice. Go back to your seat and have a seat. And I will stand at the end of the song and read a text, and then we will partake of the elements. Does everyone understand?